Today's reading is Matthew 7, 15 through 29. Watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. By their fruit, you'll recognize them. Do people pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Likewise, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, by their fruit, you will recognize them. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and in your name perform many miracles? And then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. When Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching, because he taught as one who had authority and not as their teachers of the law. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. When I was a child, my parents took me to Sunday school, and one of the kids' songs that I learned as a child was based upon the text that was read to us today. The first two stanzas compare and contrast a wise man, a wise person, and a foolish person. The third stanza ends with these lyrics. So build your life on the Lord Jesus Christ, that we say that three times, and then the blessings will come down. The blessings will come down as your prayers go up. That's sung three times. So build your life on the Lord. Anybody else learn that as a kid in Sunday school? Okay. Showing your age? All right. <laughs> Just watch videos now. Uh, yeah, we actually sang those and learned those. And those words have stuck with me to this day. But, you know, here's the question. Is that what Jesus was getting at in telling this short story? Was Jesus trying to say... The blessings will come down as your prayers go up, so build your life on the Lord. Is that what he was trying to get at when he told this short story? Well, for those of you who are new to Grace, we're in a summer series called Short Stories by Jesus. It's about the parables that Jesus told. And why parables? Because Jesus told a lot of them. One-third of the recorded sayings in the Synoptic Gospels, that's Matthew, Mark, and Luke, are in parables. So if you really want to pay attention to Jesus and his teachings, you need to pay attention to the parables. And when we talk about parables, when we talk about these short stories, they're more than just clever stories like Aesop's fables or kind of a a religious book of virtues, if you remember that book that William Bennett put out years ago. It's more than that. Parables are supposed to do something. 
And that's why we're spending time on them. Listen to what Amy Jo Levine, who's written the book that we stole the title of the series from, Short Stories by Jesus, she writes these words. Religion has been defined as designed to comfort the afflicted and to afflict the comfortable. We do well to think of the parables of Jesus as doing the afflicting. Therefore, if we hear a parable and think, I really like that, or worse, fail to take any challenge, we are not listening well enough. Such listening is not only a challenge, it is also an art, and this art has become lost. Down through the centuries, starting with the gospel writers themselves, parables have been allegorized, moralized, Christologized, and otherwise tamed into either platitudes such as God loves us, or be nice, or worse, assurances that all is right with the world as long as we believe in Jesus. Too often we settle for easy interpretations. We should be nice like the Good Samaritan. We will be forgiven, as was the prodigal son. We should pray and not lose heart like the importuning widow. When we seek universal morals from a genre that is designed to surprise, challenge, shake up, or indict, and look for a single meaning in a form that opens to multiple interpretations, we are necessarily limiting the parables, and so ourselves. If we stop with the easy lessons, good though they may be, we lose the way Jesus' first followers would have heard the parables, and we lose the genius of Jesus' teaching. Those followers, like Jesus himself, were Jews, and Jews knew that parables were more than children's stories or restatements of common knowledge. They knew that parables and the tellers of parables were there to prompt them to see the world in a different way, to challenge, and at times to indict. We might be better off thinking less about what they mean and more about what they can do. Remind, provoke, refine, confront, disturb. So with that in mind, I'd like to invite you to look with me a little bit closer at the story that was read to us this morning from Matthew 7. If you don't have a Bible, there's one underneath your seat. It's page 812 in that blue Bible. If you have an app, feel free to open that up. Matthew chapter 7. And the question that I want to ask as we approach this text this morning is, how might we hear this? Because that's a natural question for us to ask, but I think the better question is, how might Jesus' largely Jewish first century listeners have heard this? Because it's always important to ask how the first listeners would have heard this. And I think that a helpful approach for going at this is to look at three things. To look at the context, to listen, secondly, for Old Testament echoes, and then thirdly, to be attentive to the cultural background. That pretty much works for any text when you're opening up the Bible, is to pay attention to those three things. So if you're new to the Bible or you're new to Christianity, this is a good approach to take, because what it does then, it allows you to read the text as an ancient text. It wasn't written to us in the 21st century. That may sound heretical, but it's true. It was written to people in the first century, largely, and then obviously people before that, as you're dealing with the Old Testament. So what about the context? Well, if you're looking down at the text, this parable comes at the end of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, and this parable is used as a way of bringing comparison and contrast to make a point. It's really not a surprise that Jesus would end the Sermon on the Mount with comparison and contrast because the Sermon on the Mount has been full of contrasts. Look at some of these contrasts that you will find in the Sermon on the Mount if you read the Sermon on the Mount. 
he compares and contrasts correct and incorrect ways to give alms, fast, and pray, improper and proper treasure, sincere and evil eyes. He compares God and money, anxiety and seeking the kingdom, broad and narrow gates, and good and worthless trees. So as you're reading just this very compressed sermon, it's full of comparisons and full of contrasts. And so when Jesus finishes with this, it's really not a surprise that he would do the very same thing he's been doing throughout. Well, what about Old Testament echoes? Well, Jesus draws on the language of storms and flood, floods from the Old Testament where it's often used as a metaphor for God's judgment. Think about Noah in Genesis chapter 6 and the flood. It's very explicit there that the flood is used for judgment on the evil that had spread throughout the world. The Psalms are full of language. For those of you who have been reading the Moravian text, we've been in some Psalms where if you, if you go back and look at the Psalms we've been in this week as we've been doing our readings, it's full of language of floods and storms that are talking about God's judgment. More explicit text you can look at, and I'll give you an example, is Isaiah. So keep your finger here and turn to Isaiah, if you would, please. Isaiah chapter 8. Isaiah 8, and if you're using the Blue Bibles, I'll help you cheat and get there fast. It's page 572. Isaiah 8. And this is where um, the king of Assyria is talked about. It says, the Lord spoke to me again, pick it up in verse 5, because this people have refused the waters of Shiloh that flow gently and rejoice over Rezin and the son of Remaliah, and therefore, behold, the Lord is bringing up against them the waters of the river, mighty and many, the king of Assyria and all his glory. And it will rise over all its channels and go over all of its banks, and it will sweep on into Judah, it will overflow and pass on, reaching even to the neck, and its outspread wings will fill the breadth of your land, O Emmanuel. It's talking about a coming judgment on Israel, and it equates the king of Assyria, who will be God's hand of judgment against Israel, and using the metaphor of a river that will come in and sweep over Israel. It's not speaking about actual water, it's speaking about the king of Assyria. So Jesus' audience, who was largely Jewish, would have heard this language of water and floods, and then what would have come to their minds is the language of the echoes of, of judgment, of God's judgment. What about the cultural background? Back to Matthew chapter 7. Well, Jesus' listeners were familiar with the destructive power of floods, of water as well. Because in the wet season in Palestine, which was mid-October to March, a high intensity of rain could produce flash flooding in the wadis. Now some of you are saying, what's a wadi? There's a wadi. I was in Israel once and went through a, a wadi. It's a, it's a basin sim- similar to the arroyos in, in New Mexico or Arizona where all of a sudden you have, this, you have this gulch. It could be wet or it could be dry. And when you have this heavy, intense rain, all of a sudden it produces this raging river of flash flooding that can be very destructive with anything that's in its path. Well, that's true in Israel. That's true in, in southwest United States as well. So it's against this background, with those three things in mind, it's against this background that Jesus tells a story about a person who builds a house in a wadi. Now, now that you have that background, perhaps Jesus was intending to be humorous. We tend to think that Jesus lacked a sense of humor, that he always had a straight face, walked around in a white robe with his hands out. (laughs) 
and never did much other than that. His hands were always fixed in that position, kind of like an action hero. But instead, I think that Jesus had a sense of humor a lot of times. It was stinging a lot of times. And so as you unpack this, you realize that perhaps he was making a point through his humor. Because who would be so spectacularly foolish as to build a home without a foundation in a wadi, knowing that you could get flooded? No one would do that. And yet Jesus is doing that to make a point. But this also comes at the end of his sermon. It's intended to press home a conclusion Look at verse 24 again, chapter 7 of Matthew. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And he contrasts that with verse 26. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. It seems pretty straightforward. He's contrasting doing and not doing. He's focusing on doing on obedience to Jesus' teachings. And in the immediate context, these words follow a warning about simply professing faith in Jesus. Verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. In other words, Jesus is saying it's not enough to simply be someone who agrees with what I've been teaching or who I've said I am. It's not enough to simply profess faith. I think this is directed at the idea that as long as we believe in Jesus, we're good to go for salvation. We've got our future guaranteed. Instead, Jesus emphasizes the importance, the necessity of hearing and doing his words. In other words, the wise person is the one who obeys. Now, is this some radically new idea that Jesus is introducing here? Well, if you go back to Israel's scripture and you look at the Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament, you see that they are grounded in the fundamental assumption there are two contrasting ways. There are two contrasting paths. And they're typically described as the way of life and the way of death. And they are linked to obedience and disobedience. Turn to Deuteronomy 28, if you would, please. This is the classic text on that. Deuteronomy 28. Again, if I make, you know, I want to support this so you can see it from Scripture. Deuteronomy 28, page 168 in the Blue Bibles. And this is God speaking to Israel, the nation. And in Deuteronomy 28, verse 1, it begins with these words, And if you faithfully obey the voice of the Lord your God, being careful to do all his commandments, this is getting them ready to go into a land that he's promised to them. Being careful to do all his commandments that I command you today, the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations of the earth, and all these blessings shall come upon you and overtake you if you obey the voice of the Lord your God. Both here and in Leviticus 26, we we get this very clear message from God that obedience to God's command, again, he's speaking to Israel here, but obedience to God's commands leads to blessing across a wide spectrum of life. And when you look down at this text 
both here and in Leviticus 26, it includes birth of children, the fruitfulness of your crops and herds, regular rains to fertilize the lands, life without fear of attack by wild animals or your enemies. There'll be blessing in the city, the field, the home. And in Deuteronomy 28, verse 5, it says, even your basket and your kneading bowl will be blessed. as you're working out your flower, that, that it will produce, it will, it will do what you want to do in terms of bread because you are blessed. It's down to the details of life, God says. On the other hand, disobedience leads to being cursed, and that's what you see beginning in Deuteronomy 28:15. And what does it mean to be cursed? It's the opposite of blessing. It's the opposite of life. It's the opposite of human flourishing. All those things that are part of being blessed, all the stuff that works out into life, the opposite is true as well. And you see that in verses 15 to 68. So go back to Matthew chapter 7. In other words, now listen to me carefully. Obedience to God, and this is something that that is very important to clarify. Obedience to God has nothing to do with simply following rules and laws or earning God's favor or trying to appease a hard-to-please deity. See, the blessings and the curses flow out of a way of living in covenant relationship with God. See, Israel is called by God, and that's an act of grace. He calls them to himself, and he promises, he says to them, I will be your God and you will be my people. And it's through you that I'm going to bless the world. It's through you I'm going to bring light to the world and life to the world. So you see, when God reaches out to Israel, it's out of his grace, it's out of his love, it's out of his favor. And he draws into himself in a covenant relationship. I will be your God, you will be my people. I am for you, he says to them. That's when we read the Old Testament, we need to read it that way. And so when you obey God, whether it's Israel in the Old Testament or whether it's us today as God's people that are reconstituted around Jesus Christ, Jew and Gentile that Paul calls in Galatians 3.29, you are all sons of Abraham now. So if, whether it's Israel, or whether it's us today, when you obey God, you're reflecting your allegiance to God. You're reflecting your covenant loyalty to God by your actions. See that? That completely changes this whole notion of obedience that seems to be so off-putting to so many people. God just, just doesn't just throw rules down and say, here's a rule book, now keep all 613 of them. He says, you're in covenant relationship with me and I am for you and I am about bringing you life and I'm about bringing you into blessings. I'm into bringing you into human life and flourishing. So you see, when you listen to God and the Bible equates listening to God with obeying God, you're choosing to live in harmony with his design. And the expected result is that your earthly life flourishes. Does that make sense? And so to disobey is foolishness because it's resisting the way things are meant to be. It's resisting the design of the good designer. 
William Stringfellow, <clears throat> who writes in a book called Imposters of God, writes these words. He says, it is a distinctive mark of the biblical mind to discern that human history is a drama of death and resurrection and not as religionists of all sorts suppose, a simplistic conflict of evil versus good in an abstract sense. For what is good is basically what is good for man and creation. In other words, what is life-giving, life-preserving, life-perfecting. God, the living one, is the author of life. He is on the side of life. Jesus said, I came that they might have life and have it to the full. That which is truly evil is that which thwarts life. And sin is any denial or rejection of the gift of life. An offense against God who bestows the gift. But the wages of sin is death, not by some arbitrary decree on God's part, but because sin by its nature is possessed of death, anti-life, death-dealing, both to the sinner and in the various kinds of death that occasions in the world. The conflict between good and evil, then, is no mere matter of choosing between right and wrong, and sin is not the mere misfortune of the wrong choice. These are aspects of the essential conflict between life and death, which God has made into a drama of death and resurrection. And this is why Jesus finishes the Sermon on the Mount with a parable that contrasts a wise person and a foolish person. To choose to listen and obey is wise because it's choosing life. Matthew 7, 13, enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many, for the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to what? Life. And those who find it are few. See, to follow Jesus is to experience the fullness of life. To obey Jesus is to experience the fullness of life, as opposed to shrinking it by choosing to go your own way. To choose to live your life your own way is to shrink life. Every time I choose to disobey what I know to be God's will for me, in that moment, I shrink life. It changes the dynamics for me of how I look at sin. It's not, my, my, my task as a follower of Jesus is not simply to avoid sin. It's to enter into life, into the fullness of life, which my Father, who loves me, has offered to me through Jesus. It's a beautiful picture. But of course, the question is whether we will trust Jesus. That's always the, the big question. I mean, every time we come into this and get exposed to the, to, to the truth of the Word of God, we're always faced with the issue, will we trust Jesus? Will we live under his authority or will we really trust ourselves more? And will we be the final authority? That's my, that's my dilemma 24 hours of the day. Probably not when I'm sleeping, but you get the point. That's always the struggle every day is whose authority will I live under? Will it be me and I shrink life or will it be Jesus and I have the possibility of entering in the fullness of life? But we're not alone in this, because in choosing life, we join a covenanted community called to manifest 
that life to the world. So it's not simply about us getting what's ours and then leaving it at that, and that's very American, that's very Western, where you just get your thing and, you know, to heck with everybody else. We're called to show this life, this way of human flourishing to the world. That's what the thing that is galvanizing us, for those of you who are new to grace, that's the thing that is galvanizing us as a community, is this vision about bringing life to people. It's not about being more right than everybody else. It's not about correcting everybody else's wrongs. It's about bringing life. And that's a different posture. But that's what Jesus is about as I read the text of Scripture. And what Jesus is about is much bigger and more compelling than just simply forgiveness of sin or even the power to overcome sin. It's about life. And put it this way. I think that the thing that causes many people to simply settle for a profession of faith and not really engage in active obedience is that they think that obeying Jesus is sacrificial and hard. Now granted, in, in we, the text that I just read to you in, in 714, it talks about the way is hard that leads to life. I think that's a perception issue. I think that Jesus may be saying that from those who are looking from the outside as he's talking to this audience, the way of following Jesus looks hard. The way of life looks hard. But I think it's just the opposite. To not choose to obey Jesus, to not choose to follow Jesus is hard. Why? Because it involves choosing something other than life. It's going against the grain of God's design. But to follow Jesus is to share in his resurrection life, and that's the good news. To follow Jesus is to share in his resurrection life. If it's just a profession of faith and then walking out and living life my way, I'd say forget it. Don't even bother. Do not bother. And certainly don't bother spending, I mean, you could just stay in bed on Sundays. But if it really is about entering into the resurrection life of Jesus and sharing in the resurrection life of Jesus, that's a game changer. That's a game changer. I mean, have you really stopped to think recently this thought, I share in the resurrection life of Jesus? As you're parenting, as you're dealing with a roommate, as you're dealing with your employees, or as you're dealing with your boss, as you're dealing with somebody who's just making life very difficult for you. Have you stepped back and said, wait a minute, I share in the resurrection life of Jesus. It is possible for me to bring life into this situation right now. So God, please show me right now what it looks like to bring life into this situation. And I'm all ears. I'm telling you that's a game changer. Because then you you step back, and it doesn't have to be all about you. It can be about, okay, Jesus... Show me what it looks like right now to bring life into the situation. I'm telling you, it's been phenomenal change for me to be able to have that posture. And to know that I am a carrier of the supernatural life of Jesus, not because I'm a pastor, but because Jesus has given me that life. And it's the same, it's true for you. It's true for you. And to share in that resurrection life means that we are people who also, because of that life, now have the power to respond to Jesus. So if you're looking at temptation, or you're looking at the, the brokenness of something in your own life, or something 
whatever it might be that you say, but you don't know my life and you don't know how difficult it's been and the things that I'm facing, the struggles, whether it's being some addiction or it's a marriage issue or it's a just you know, concern about the future, whatever it might be. My word to you is that if you have the resurrection life of Jesus, Jesus is there for you. He is for you and he gives you life in order that you might be able to respond in a way to experience the fullness of life and bring life to others. To me, that's compelling. That's absolutely compelling. And the bottom line is, for me, is that Jesus' resurrection enables me, enables us to live a naturally supernatural life. And really, that naturally supernatural life, I'm sorry, this is going to sound really simple, involves just simply doing what he tells us to do. You start getting serious about stepping into the fullness of life, which means doing what he tells you to do, and all of a sudden your life takes on a supernatural quality to it. You may not necessarily be aware of it, but others are. Because Jesus starts coming through. And that's what I hold out to you. That's what I hold out to you. And I invite you into it. I invite you into the life of Jesus, whether it's for the first time or whether it's for the, a time of, to be renewed in this today that you would be someone who says, I don't want to live out on the margins. I don't want to live out on my own way. I don't want to live out in a way that's shrinking life. I want to step into the fullness of life. If that's your desire, just talk to Jesus in a moment. That we, I'll give you a, like a, a minute of just quiet. And I'll hold it, and I'll preserve it, and I'll ask everybody not to leave right now. Just hold on for a minute and give those who want to talk to Jesus about this just a chance to do that in the quietness of this moment, and then we'll continue our response time. Jesus, you are so compelling, so... So what we wish we could be. And that's exactly why you've come. To restore us to what it means to be human and in looking at you to see that you truly are the second Adam. You're the one who shows us what it looks like to enter in the fullness of life, the beauty of all that it is, the way that your life gave life to so many, the way people were drawn to you because there's such love and grace and mercy and forgiveness that flowed out of you. And I and we aspire to that and we ask through your spirit that you would renew our trust in you, that we would step out and show by our actions that we do indeed trust you. So I pray for those who are praying right now, Lord, that, that are really reaching out to you, that you would you would, you would meet them. And it's in your name I pray. Amen.